0: well good morning once again welcome to those of you who are here with us in the flesh those of you join us by live stream welcome to you as well let me begin here this morning Ephesians chapter 3 for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name I pray that according to the riches of his glory he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the other saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know The love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Since my late teens, early 20s, sometime in there, I have been praying the prayers of the Apostle Paul found in his letters in several places. My mother taught me to pray those prayers, to just turn them around and pray them as if they were my own prayers being prayed for people who are on my heart, as the Apostle Paul has written to the people who are on his heart, that he's these are the prayers he's been praying for them. And this one in particular, Ephesians three, this one, this one gets me. It still gets me. You know, thirty some odd years in, still gets me. Paul here is praying for these people to be rooted and grounded in love. I think about that. He says just pray one thing for you I pray for you to be rooted and grounded in love but he doesn't stop there, he doesn't just say that there's more he he wants them, he says, he wants them to comprehend the dimensions of this love the breadth, the length, the height the depth of this love and to fully know, he says the love of Christ which actually goes beyond knowledge So that they, so that we, can be filled with the fullness of God. So Paul says in this prayer, he says, there's this love. And he calls it here, the love of Christ. And he's inviting us, I'm going to say. He's inviting us to explore this love fully. He says, come on, enter into it and begin to fathom its boundaries. And guess what he says? You'll actually never reach its boundaries. You'll never actually get there. You can try to fathom its depths and you'll never find it. You can try to soar to its heights and you'll never get to the edge. You can go as far to the east as far to the west and you'll never find a boundary. This love, he says, is infinite. It surpasses knowledge. Keep on searching it out, but you can't ever fully search it out. It's it's extraordinary. You'll never arrive at a border. You'll never arrive at a boundary point. There is none because this love surpasses knowledge. Yeah, 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 he says, and here's the thing. As you continue with this exploring, this seeking, this soaking, this meditating on the infinite love of Christ, he says, here's what's going to happen, not all at once, but over time. You're going to be filled with all the fullness of God. So to soak in boundaryless love, to meditate upon, to explore, to tour infinite love, to be rooted and grounded in love, he says, is to be filled with all the fullness of God. That's extraordinary, everybody. So you want to ask the question, wait a minute, Paul, I thought you were writing these beautiful lines about love. I thought you were, I thought you were, you were, you were talking about love, a big, a big, boundless, infinite love. And, and now you're talking about being, being filled with the fullness of God. What's going on here? He says, yeah, we are talking about love. And to talk about soaking in love is to talk about being filled with the fullness of God. In a more poetic way, Paul is saying what the Apostle John would say. God is love. And as you are, he says, increasingly enveloped into this infinite love, you are actually being filled with the fullness of God. Man, I'm just saying, thinking like that, praying like that, that'll mess with you. And I'm saying all this because I think in many ways to a certain extent, my course was set early in my life. It wasn't until years later that it began to materialize, but that course was set much earlier, really even beneath my perception. Because I began to notice a pattern in my world, both in religious rhetoric and in theology proper. And the pattern goes something like this. You'll hear the sincere and enthusiastic affirmation, God is love. And then quietly, or maybe even not so quiet, but in another context, you'll hear something that amounts to, yeah, but God is also. And then it'll start again, and you'll hear the enthusiastic, even bombastic affirmation, God is good. And everyone says yes, and then maybe sometimes right on the heels of that, but sometimes in another context you'll hear this, yeah, but God is also. God is love, yeah, but God is also just. God is good, yeah, but God is also holy. And what I began to notice and what I began to perceive as the effect of this giant yeah, but in the middle of that affirmation the net effect of that was to negate what had been said before. So we had created, again, my perception, we had created, in effect, our own sort of Christian version of the yin and the yang. The equal and the opposite are both nested, buried within this notion of the divine that we call God. And so I became dissatisfied with this, what I consider to be a... uh, self-negation of virtually all of our claims about the goodness of God. And so I began a theological search for better answers. It was private at first. Just reading books by authors outside of my tribe. And then over time going further and further back through the history of the Jesus movement. And eventually that progression led me to the group known as the church fathers a a term that generally refers to um, that first few generations of pastors and preachers and teachers and elders and mystics um, after the generation of the writers of the new testament and what i discovered there was a source of sheer delight for me and actually I began to realize over time that I was, mm, I, don't, I don't mean this wrong, but I was pre-programmed to migrate toward what I was finding because my own devotional life for 30-some-odd years had trained me that the love of Christ, the love of God, is actually infinite and boundless. Which meant that any time I saw or heard or encountered an articulation of God that was more loving than the one I had inherited up to that point, then then this is the authentic one. And when I find when I find a depiction of God that's that's more loving, more beneficent than that one, then this is the one. Because I knew if I knew nothing else from the heart of the Apostle Paul praying for those believers a couple thousand years ago, and I'm convinced he was praying for us too, that the love of God is in fact infinite, and as long as you are placing boundaries on that love, then what you have encountered or realized or imagined up until that point is insufficient. Because what Paul has been doing for us for 2,000 years is begging us to continue to search its boundaries, its height, its depth, its width, its breadth. And in fact, the love of God surpasses knowledge. And so in my own sort of, again, so far private search, I began to find these, what were to me, delightful answers to these theological questions. Um, and these writers, these preachers, pastors, elders, these mystics began providing me with the tools to say with Paul, God is love, full stop. God is good, full stop. No yeah but, no boundaries. God is love, full stop. And was for the first time in my life provided with the theological tools, the theological spade work, you know, to support that. And so now I'm up to only a few years ago now. As many of you know, I began to teach publicly from this newfound treasure trove of theological resources. And I thought... (laughs) That everyone would be as delighted as I was to discover this richness and beauty. And for sure some folks were as delighted as I am. But what I was not prepared for was the continuation right here and right now in our midst of the all too familiar yeah but. And all that, of course, leads us to Pentecost. (laughs) That's where we are on the church calendar. Well, next Sunday, uh, we'll formally mark the observance of Pentecost for the church. Next week, says the church calendar, is the Feast of Pentecost. So today, what I'd like to do is a two-week reflection on Pentecost. And so we're going to start with a Pentecost observance that occurred actually sometime after the day of Pentecost that we know of and celebrate from Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin our study by looking at this subsequent Pentecost and kind of through that Pentecost look back then next week at the day of Pentecost from Acts chapter 2. And just for a little context, um, one of the most important themes or maybe the most important theme that runs through the later part of the book of Acts is Paul's sort of dogged insistence upon getting back to Jerusalem for the Pentecost observance. And so this time, by this time where we're picking up the story, we're late in the book of Acts. Um, and Paul is making his way back to Jerusalem through all kinds of adventure and pain and difficulty and so on. But you can kind of see why, maybe, when you think about it in big broad terms you can kind of see why paul might have had such a fervor to get back to jerusalem i mean he could have observed pentecost anywhere but he wanted to get to jerusalem for this pentecost observance you can kind of see why i mean the day of pentecost is when the spirit was poured out in such a dramatic way that that had actually been the launch point right of the jesus movement which had now long since now swept paul up into it and had compelled him throughout the diaspora throughout, really, the known world, bringing this good news to anyone and everyone. And so, you know, from one standpoint, from Paul's own personal narrative, this is like a homing beacon for him. You know, it's like this is, my, this is where my spiritual roots, you know, are fed, you know, this spirit poured out uh, thing. So you can kind of understand that. And also, and here's kind of my point for telling you my autobiographical story, there's also a cautionary tale In This vignette that we get from what we're going to read this morning when Paul does finally arrive at Jerusalem because what we're going to see is a now ancient instance of that very same dynamic where Paul shows up into town in Jerusalem and meets his fellow Jesus believers and basically giving them his report he declares God is love and they say yay and then they say but. And that's what we're going to see. Okay. Um, so this is Paul making this broad journey to Jerusalem. This is the city that has killed the prophets again and again and again throughout its history. Jesus was more than a prophet, but to say that Jerusalem is the city that killed the prophets would include the crucifixion of Christ no less. So this is Paul's journey to Jerusalem. But again, on another level, it's important for us to recognize that this is the Spirit's journey to Jerusalem. It is, it is this boundless Spirit of God who is compelling Paul to make his way back to this very stubborn people. All right, so finally Paul gets there. Acts 21, here we pick up the story. When we, this is one of the, what's known as a we section where the, the author of the book of Acts, Luke, is including himself in the group. When we arrived in Jerusalem... The brothers welcomed us warmly. The next day Paul went with us to visit James and all the elders were present. Present, James being the leader of the Jerusalem Jesus Church. After greeting them he related, that's Paul, one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they praised God. So here's, here's the scene. Paul and his crew finally make it to jerusalem the brothers the jesus believers greet them warmly they go to the jerusalem church paul starts to give them his report he's telling them what's been happening man i've been going throughout the diaspora i've been you know proclaiming the kingdom of god talking about the resurrection of christ and the gentiles are eating it up and this same spirit that fell upon all of us is falling upon them and he's telling them The stories, the Gentiles, are being embraced by the divine. That is among the people who are not Jewish, right? The Spirit of God, he says, is falling upon and embracing Gentile flesh. The worshipers of the gods are turning from idols and worshiping jesus christ and so paul you can just imagine the scene he's telling story after story after story yeah if you need if you need a cup of coffee to stay awake for this next one go get you a cup of coffee because i got more stories i mean he just can continually telling story after story of life after life in city after city changed and transformed and turned right side up by this big embrace of the spirit poured out onto all flesh that's what peter preached at the pentecost next chapter two we'll get there next week and how do the brothers respond in the church? Ah, yes, amen, amen. God is good. God is love. They, they responded with praise and affirmation. They praised God, he says, Luke writes. Maybe they, maybe they, you know, did the old church chant. Somebody said, God is good. And everybody else in the room said, all the time. And then Paul said, God is good. Everybody said, all the time. Maybe James, the leader of the Jerusalem church there, said, you know, Paul's right, y'all, I'm going to do me one. God is good. And everybody said all the time. I mean, they just had a, you know, a shout kind of a deal. It's a great scene. And yet, when we keep reading, there are other notes and tones also brewing in the atmosphere. Listen how it begins to turn. Verse 20. Then they, the church, let's just assume maybe the church leaders perhaps said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of believers, that is, believers in Jesus, there are among the Jews, and they are all zealous for the law. They've been told about you and that you teach all the Jews living among the Gentiles to forsake Moses and that you tell them not to circumcise their children or observe the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come, so what's going on here? Well, these Jesus following leaders of the still very Jewish Jerusalem church are explaining to Paul that there's thousands of Jesus followers in Jerusalem who are also kosher, you know following Moses, keeping the law they're still very, very Jewish, and they're explaining that there's a rumor that's been going around that there's a guy named Paul roaming around the entire diaspora throughout the regions telling Jews who have now you know been scattered out beyond well beyond Jerusalem not to observe the law. So they're telling Paul, look, we're happy about all your stories, um, but you've got a reputation problem, a deep and serious one. In other words, the big giant, praise God, has now been met with a yeah but, right? Um, And so in Jerusalem, again, backing up a layer, in Jerusalem here, Paul speaks with the Spirit's voice. He speaks as the Spirit's emissary. Paul speaks as the heart and mind of God. And his message is, God is at home among the Gentiles. And after their initial response of yea, comes the response, "Mm, but... The Gentiles don't have a home among us. God may be at home among them, but they don't have a home among us. Listen, Paul, we're happy about all your warm fuzzies. We're happy about all your wild stories of Gentiles that are feeling loved by God. We're happy about all that. But we know what a a genuine God follower looks like. And your Gentiles are not God followers. Because they don't look like us. And so, praise follows Paul's report. Celebration, joy, thanksgiving. And then the praise becomes bounded. The praise becomes hemmed in. No sooner does the praise escape their lips than is the praise hemmed in by concern. Concern for... Religious propriety, concern for protocol. Yeah, it's a banquet, but there's boundaries on this banquet. Yeah, it's a celebration, but the celebration's got to be circumcised. Yeah, it's a festival, but we got to fence it in a little bit. See what I'm saying? That's That's what's going on here. What is the precise concern? Well, they've said it. This rumor about Paul telling Jews to forsake Moses, it's not actually true. paul never, That's not actually what Paul taught. But it's similar enough to the truth to gain some traction. Um, so these Jewish followers of Jesus have been told about Paul and told that Paul is telling Jewish people not to follow the law. Paul is indeed telling Gentile believers in Jesus that they need not adopt Moses the laws of Moses that much would be true but Paul never tells Jewish people to abandon a lifestyle of following Moses he never does he just says don't force it upon these Gentiles and so with all that maybe that's too much nuance for the rumor mill right so uh, you know it's close enough to the truth that when energized by zeal and fear and paranoia and all that stuff it's told as if it were true about Paul. And so Paul has a problem, this concern. And so the leaders come up with a recommendation as the situation is basically we could say the situation is spirit poured out meets concern for religious order. Spirit poured out bumps up against Concern for, well, religious propriety, let's say. And it's ironic, and here's where our connecting point is, where we'll be next week, that the book of Acts opens with this scene on what we call the day of Pentecost, right here in this same city, right here in this same Jerusalem where this event is occurring, where the Spirit of God is poured out onto all flesh. That's what Peter preach, quoting the ancient prophet Joel. And on that day, the disciples of Jesus spoke in the very languages of the foreigners who were on the heart of God. This divine lover of the other entered into the disciples of Jesus and enabled them to speak the language of the other, to cross the boundaries of religious propriety in order to speak the language of the other. It was a dramatic scene of divine generosity, scandalously so, in God's pursuit of people across all ethnicities. And now here we are just a few years later, fast forward from that day of Pentecost to this now sort of Pentecostal observance period where Paul is in Jerusalem, once again on the Feast of Pentecost. And the pushback from the people, even the Jesus people, the pushback of the people is to, once again, pull back this boundless generosity of God. Hem it in. Fence it in. It can't be that big, Paul. It can't be that good, Paul. It can't be that diversified, Paul, right? That's the nature of the pushback. And so I just want to say, that if I could say, and maybe we'll work on this next week. You know, we said last week we talked about the ascension. And we said to put it together, Easter says Jesus lives. The Ascension says Jesus rules and reigns. Maybe we need to come up with a concise, squished down one for Pentecost. I'm not prepared to answer that, but but I am compelled to sort of hone in on this one focal point for Pentecost. And it would be this, that to observe Pentecost for us now, here now, year after year, in essence, invites us again and again and again to soak in the scandal of God's Spirit poured out on the forbidden ones. The ones who you believe, the ones who they believe, they being here, the the leaders of the Jerusalem church, the ones who any of us might believe are forbidden by the Spirit. Oh, the Spirit would love somebody like me, but he can't love somebody like them. Oh, the Spirit would fall upon somebody like me, but he can't fall upon somebody like them. Pentecost, to observe Pentecost, I mean fully, richly, deeply, sincerely, is to again and again and again bring us back to this recognition. Oh yeah, oh yeah, the scandal of God's spirit is that he has been and he is, and I'm going to make a reference in a minute, still today in our world today, he is pouring himself out on those whom, at least for many, maybe none of us, but for many other sincere jesus followers would say are off limits to the love of god so that's the situation so the, the leaders come up with a plan they say here's the plan paul uh, we got this group of really devout uh, jesus loving moses keeping uh worshipers and they're about to commit themselves to a rite of purification and we want you to join in with them they're going to shave their heads they're going to make sacrifices present themselves in the temple uh and we want you to join join in with this group Why do they suggest that to Paul? What's their motive? Here it is, verse 24. Thus, so that all will know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself observe and guard the law. In other words, Paul, what we want you to do is jump in with these other Moses-following Jesus believers and prove to everyone that you're really just like them. And that's going to bring peace. What's going to bring cohesion to the religious group, Paul, is for you to conform to the religious group. Does everybody see what's going on here? Man. Notice what they did not do, for example. They did not respond to the situation by launching a teaching campaign on the boundless embrace of the spirit of god they didn't say paul we got this problem we got all these jesus believers they're still paranoid about moses and the bounding of the love of god we were all there at pentecost we know what happened we know that the spirit of god is embracing all these gentiles so what we want you to do is we want you to start a bible study paul can we start about 10 a.m tomorrow morning and we just want you to teach and preach and get all these people to understand that god's love is bigger than the jewish people notice that's not what's in this narrative this religious leader said oh no paul we want you to perform we want you to perform to the, and I'm going to say this a little bit strongly, we want you to perform for the bigoted religious masses so that you can receive the blessing of the bigoted religious masses. I mean, that's strong, but that's what's going on. They, These religious leaders, maybe more nicely we can say, Their imaginations are confined by their own religious experience, right? That's maybe a nicer way to say it. Maybe I should have said it that way. Anyway. Um, So this is what's going on in this story. Simply put, and this is important for Bible readers, I think, for me to say something like this. Simply put, Paul is speaking, living, vibing In the heart and mind and spirit of God. And the religious leaders of the Jesus Church in Jerusalem simply don't get it. And that's strong to say, but you need to know that kind of thing goes on in the pages of Scripture. When you read this kind of thing, these guys are wrong in this moment. Have you all heard about um, sometimes called insider movements or insider Jesus? I've talked about this before. There's books now that are being written about it, um, but I, and, and you may be aware of this, um, but one of, the, one of the compelling stories going on right now for what are called missiologists, people who study missions and, and the move of God around the world, one of the most compelling Uh, Phenomenon that's happening today around the world is what are called insider movements or insider Jesus. And that is what's going on, and we're finding this among Muslims, among Hindus, among Buddhists, all around the world, where Muslims are following Jesus while still being Muslim, where Buddhists are following Jesus while still being Buddhist, while Hindus are following Jesus while remaining very, very Hindu. And so if you meet these people, you're gonna find the trappings and the norms of of their of, of Hinduism. And yet when you start talking about what's going on in their heart, what's going on in their, in their religious imagination, what's going on in their devotional life, oh Jesus, he's my Jesus is he's my savior. Jesus is my you know, am I'm I'm following Jesus. But you look like a Muslim. You act like a Muslim. You have a Quran on your oh yeah, but Jesus I'm a Jesus guy. I'm following Jesus. I mean, this is a new thing that's going on Right here in the world today, and and the books are, are just now being written. It's almost like in in real time where these movements are being studied around the world. And this movement is not being driven by missionaries. There's no white missionary that came up with this idea. Um, they're more or less, at least for now, as far as missiologists can can tell, they're by all observances they are spontaneous movements. These people are discovering Jesus, beginning to study the Bible together. Forming Jesus communities within their own existing religious and social contexts? I mean, this is wild. It really forces us to ask a question. And you know, not to answer out loud, but I think it's instructive just to ask the question. Is God capable of pouring Himself out on Hindu people in their Hindu context? Is, Is God capable of doing that? Is God capable. Of, of pouring out his spirit upon Muslims in their Muslim context? Is God capable of pouring out his spirit upon Buddhists in their very Buddhist context? Is God, is his spirit that big? Is he that relentless? Is he that, uh, is there that much largesse in the love of God? Is God that free? <laughs> that welcoming? Is he that relentless? No missionaries, no pope, no Broadman hymnal, no just as I am, no church buildings being built, no membership class, no Westminster catechism, no, just the embrace of the divine. And here's the pinch point of referencing that movement. What if in that context, so think about as I just described, insider movement. There, I, uh, I use the phrase insider Jesus. That's one of the best books about it. If you want to read it, you can get it from Amazon, insider Jesus. Uh, what if I or someone else were to come along to one of these Jesus communities, let's say within a Hindu community, and say, okay, that's so great, but now we've got to teach you the Brahmin hymnal. But now we've got to start teaching you the Westminster Catechism. I mean, how, can you see how discordant that would be? Well, I'm reaching for that because it's, it's loosely analogous with what's going on in this story that we're reading with Paul and the Jesus believers in Jerusalem. It's just flipping the script. You look at it from the standpoint of Paul, okay, but now I just tried to make the effort for us to look, look at the same dynamic from the standpoint of the Jewish leaders. Because there's something in me that wants to go, how can you really know Jesus if you never walk the aisle while just as I am is playing? How can you really know Jesus if you don't know at least some of the Westminster Catechism? How can you know Jesus? You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to say that. And yet the Insider Jesus Movement pushes back against all of those bigotries in me. See what I'm saying? And so this is the story... That we have, and this is, I'm going to say, at least for this particular observance, is the essence of Pentecost. It forces us to come face to face with the reality that God has demonstrated Himself to be boundary breaking in His love and embrace. So what are some implications of this? Uh, Well, i got two, and then we'll be done. Uh, It's happening right now, you may be aware, uh, but uh, unfortunately I suspect that in the coming weeks we're all going to hear a lot more about the conflict that is currently escalating in Gaza. It's a complex situation for sure. The bombs are flying, and the Rhetoric is flying and the retaliation is escalating between Israel and the Palestinians, Hamas included. Um, It's a complex situation for sure. There have now been decades of escalating cycles of violence and retaliation and I don't pretend to have any solutions, easy solutions for that. That's not my point. I only want to say this. The affection of the Spirit of God is upon the Palestinians, just as it is upon the Israelis. In our culture, in our little neck of the woods around here, you're going to hear a whole lot about, we stand with Israel. And it's true, we do. I stand with Israel, and I also stand with every little Palestinian boy and girl and mother and child and dad and uncle and granddad. Sometimes you hear that rhetoric, we stand with Israel as if God has chosen a side. And sometimes you hear we stand with Israel as if it is some sort of theological justification for religious violence. It is not. There is no such thing. The affection of God is upon the Palestinians just as it is upon the Israelis. Listen. The scandal of Pentecost, the scandal of Christ and the Spirit poured out is that we now see That the chosen people, after all, is the human race. And the holy land, after all, is the entire earth. That's what we see of God in Christ. That is part of the natural outworking of Pentecost. And the boundless spirit of God poured out upon the earth. And listen, again, if we could just back up. Can we just recognize that the entire trajectory of the narrative of the bible as it portrays god's love and redemption the entire trajectory trajectory of the narrative is from the particular to the universal right think about it god's love and redemption from the particular of abraham and his family and then play it fast forward to the universality of the human race as we see on the day of pentecost the trajectory in terms of geography we could even say of God's love and redemption carries from the particularity of the borders of Israel and then fast forward to a love and redemption program that is borderless. That's the trajectory of the narrative of the Bible about the redemptive loving project of God. That's what the Bible teaches from start to finish. It is from particular to universal. This is a part of the outworking of Pentecost. The second thing is this, and it's much more personal. Um, I want to say for you, if you're listening by podcast or watching live stream or here in person, this matters to get this sort of, you know, like grounded, Paul said rooted and grounded in the prayer, to get this grounded in our soul. This matters for all of us because sometimes some folks get the idea That somehow our sinfulness creates some sort of impassable border between ourselves and God. Like, because I am sinful, I must be out of God's reach or outside of God's, you know, whatever. Because I am sinful, broken, darkened, whatever. Because of this, I must be outside the reach of God, of God's goodness, of God's favor, of whatever. God must be displeased with me and therefore he must reject me. That way of thinking is quite common. It's not very often that someone says it out loud as bluntly as I just did, but I think in our souls sometimes that that's the record that plays. And you could probably even cobble together a couple Bible verses to support that ideology. I'm not saying that. But this is serious. I just want to implore you, please don't miss the forest for the trees. Please don't, you know, miss the big important narrative here. And it's this. This God is relentless toward you as well. He is for you. He is on your side, and he will never stop coming after you. Nothing can stop him from coming after you. That's the very personal outworking of Pentecost. I love the little story from the funeral of Eugene Peterson just a few years ago. Eugene Peterson, the author of The Message and other books that have been meaningful to many of us, his son, Leif, spoke at his funeral. And he said that his dad, Eugene, in 29 years of pastoral ministry, Leif said his dad only had one sermon. (laughs) That for all the books he wrote and all the sermons he preached, he really only had one message. And Leif said it was a secret that his dad had let him in on very early in life. It was a secret that his dad had literally whispered into his ear day after day and night after night from the time he had been a little boy. His dad, Eugene, told him, Son, God loves you. He's on your side, and he's coming after you, and he's relentless. Over and over again. And so I just want to say to you today, in the blowing wind, God loves you. He's on your side. And he's coming after you. And he's relentless in doing so. You can't stop him. Leaf described this as a secret that his dad, Eugene Peterson, had let him in on. And I just want to say, when you look at history, it ain't no secret. For anybody looking, For anybody, open. It's not a secret. This is the historical reality. He loves us. He is on our side. He's coming after us. And he is relentless. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we're grateful for your great love. The way that you have broken into history to reveal undeniably in and through Jesus Christ who you are, what you're like, and what you're up to in the world. And I pray, Father, that um, as you continue to pursue us, I pray that you would open our eyes to enable us to see you for who you are. And that just as Paul invited those ancient believers 2,000 years ago, that we would hear you say, come. Come explore the depth, the height, the breadth, of this love that surpasses knowledge we want to be rooted and grounded in love and thereby be filled with the fullness of God